We are in that season of Advent, that season where we anticipate the coming of Christ, remembering his first a long-awaited coming and looking forward to his return. And as we said last week, we are going to be looking at one of the prototypical Advent characters to prepare us for the coming of Christ, who is John the Baptist. Last week we did look at Isaiah chapter 40, a prophetic text that talked about the voice that would declare and prepare for the coming of Christ. And today we're going to look of how John the Baptist fulfilled those prophecies by looking at Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. If you look that up in your pew Bibles, it's found starting on page number 960. Again, the first 12 verses of Matthew chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I remember back to last week and what a joyous Sunday morning it was, having had a wonderful Thanksgiving service. We came back here on Sunday morning and the decorations were all up and it was a reminder, we are in the Advent season. And in the worship service, we had the opportunity to witness two baptisms, reminding us of the great promises of God sealed to us as individuals and we lit the candle of hope. And then in our text from Isaiah 40, we focused on that word and and we saw how God gives us hope. How our God is not a God who quickly quits on even sinful humans, but his word never fails. And because of that, we can trust in him and we can rely on him and we celebrated God's faithfulness. And that's what we want to do in this season, isn't it? 
to remember how that light came into a dark world and how we therefore have all kinds of wonderful things that we can celebrate. We want that gift of Jesus to just appear like a Christmas present on Christmas morning where we can celebrate that now everything is taken care of. We want that Savior That one who rescues us from our sins and we celebrate a God who says, I know that you have ruined it, but don't worry. I've come to fix and to heal and to restore. Those are the wonderful things that we celebrate. And as we anticipated in that text from Isaiah 40, that John would come and proclaim. But now this Sunday... We open up and we see that John arrives and and we read this text and instead of it sounding like this wonderful proclamation of the return of God and to be celebrated and enjoyed, we see much more of of some threats, if you will. Instead of the, the soft glowing candle of hope, the only light we hear about in our text is of an unquenchable fire of judgment that is about to come. So how does that fit into the message of this season? Well, in Matthew, John basically suddenly shows up in the text that we just read. And when he does, we recognize immediately that John is quite the odd character. We see it most notably in verse 4 when it talks about his appearance and his diet. We learn that his normal clothing was camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. And what he normally ate was locusts and wild honey. Now, to be truthful, for someone who was used to living in the wilderness in that day and age, his clothes and his appearance, his diet is not that abnormal for someone who lived in that part of society. However, it certainly stands out in contrast when you compare it to those who were the upper echelons of society, those celebrated by society. John stands out as someone who is much poorer and a a simpler man. Certainly not someone caught up in the trends of the day where clothing was normally linen and where people were trying to get the the praise of their peers and the fashion that they wore. John was very countercultural when it comes to that. Meaning, though, of course, that he didn't just bring a word of challenge, but by his, his appearance... And by the consistency of his life, he lived in a way that was different from most people. And of course, by what he wore and by the things that he ate and people saw John, it brought to their mind images and connections to Old Testament prophets like the prophet Elijah. By the way, the people responded to him. They clearly saw him as a prophet. We are told that people from all over the region came to hear what he had to say and to see him. But as odd as his appearance was, it was his message that people came to hear. And we are told that his message was pretty straightforward and concise. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let's start with that command, repent. That word has connotations of of turning. It means to have a change of your thoughts and attitude about God that will impact your choices and your actions. 
Behind the call to repent is the implicit accusation that you are doing something wrong, that you are living in sin right now, and because of that, you are called to stop, to confess your sins, to recognize that you're walking the wrong way and that you need to turn. You need to turn in your attitude toward God. You need to turn in the choices that you are making, and you have to start walking with God and according to his ways. It's the call to clean up your life. So I was trying to highlight with these young children here. It's exactly the call that we have that when we've got visitors coming, we've got to clean up the house. Let's get rid of the junk that lays around. Let's make sure the toys are put away, that the, the counters are all dusted and clean so that when the visitors come, they will feel welcomed and they won't see all of the chaos of what is our normal routine of life. Change your life. Clean up your house. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The Old Testament prophets often spoke about what they called the day of the Lord. It was a day that had some severe contrast. On the one hand, it was a day to look forward to for those that were in a right relationship with God. This was the day when justice for them would finally come, when their enemies would finally have to give an account for the way that they persecuted and harassed the people of the Lord. But because of that, it was also a day to be feared. It was a day for those who had opposed God, who were against him when they would meet that judgment. And that judgment would be severe and it would be harsh. The wrath of God against their sins would be poured out. Well, when John speaks about the coming of the kingdom, we have some of those very same contrasts present here. God is the king of the universe. And he's coming in a whole new way, and you need to be prepared for that because it is going to happen soon. And those who are for him are going to celebrate because they will see him and they will know him and they will experience God in an unexpected and a new way. But those who are against him, be careful. Be worried because he will come to judge. And so was the voice of the one who was calling for people to be prepared for the coming of the Lord and the new experience of the kingdom. John was calling people to change the way that they were living their lives, to repent and prepare for a kingdom that was at hand. And the people came. And the people heard. And in response to the message that John was bringing, they went through the ritual of baptism, which was a, a, a sense of a dedication of cleansing themselves and desiring to, to live that new life he was calling them to live. They confessed their sins and were washed in the waters of baptism. But when we get to verses 7 through 10 of our text, we learn that it wasn't just those who were sincere who came to hear the message of John. But it was also the Pharisees and the Sadducees that came out. Now, right away, let me identify the fact that when the Pharisees and the Sadducees come out, that for many people would be a, a good and a wonderful thing. Collectively, the Pharisees and the Sadducees made up what was known as the Sanhedrin. 
This was the ruling council of Jerusalem at the time. They oversaw the religious practices of Judaism and especially all of the rituals that took place at the temple. So they were the leaders of the society at that time with all of the political clout and the authority that comes with that. Separately, the Pharisees were known as a group that was dedicated to observance of the law. They knew their Old Testaments. They looked back at the prophets like Isaiah and the warnings that came up when the people wandered from obedience to God's commands and the consequences that they paid in the exile. And they said, this must never happen again. And so they became strictly and and vehemently dedicated to obedience to the law in every jot and tittle. Let's define how many steps you are allowed to take before you are working on the Sabbath. Let's figure out how heavy a load you are allowed to carry. Let's get very strict about what all of these laws mean and to make sure that we never disobey. Now, on the one hand, that sounds like a laudable goal to obey God in every area of life. But unfortunately, as we see in this text and as we see in the interactions with the Pharisees, they got so focused on the law that they started to lose sight of the God that laid behind that law. That they started focusing so much on on doing things the right way, they forgot that the law was meant as a vehicle toward a better relationship with God. And in focusing just on the law, not only did they separate themselves from God in some ways, but they also separated themselves from other humans. In their obedience, they got very proud. And it allowed them to set up divisions where they were so much better than the other lowly people who were not as good at keeping the law as they were. And so instead of loving their neighbor, they looked down their noses at their neighbor because they weren't as good as the Pharisees. The Sadducees were more of the political end. They were known as the aristocracy of the day. They were the people who were in charge of the working of the temple. And they were, were just people that would be looked up to for their wealth and for their influence in society. And while they worked with the Pharisees in the Sanhedrin, they were distinct from the Pharisees when they did not believe in life after death. They didn't believe in spirits or angels. They just were worried about this life because that's all that there was and that's all that mattered. So while, yes, they were religiously devoted to God, they wanted to do so for the sake of having a good, blessed life here because there was nothing to come after this. Well, again, most people, when they would have encountered either the Pharisees or the Sadducees, they would have been in awe of them. They would have honored them in their presence. They would be excited. Here are the people in society that we look up to, that we identify as models, that we all strive to be like in our lives. And it's very likely that the Pharisees and the Sadducees loved that adulation and honor. But that's not how John responds to them. John actually speaks against them. He starts in verse 7 by saying, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? 
calling them a brood of vipers, he's saying that while they are there, they may look innocent enough, but John's got questions about their motives. They're not there to receive the message of John. They're there to attack and to destroy him and his message. And then those that prided themselves as followers of the law, John says to them, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Now that's an interesting thing. The message was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But if anyone were to say, well, that's for us common folks, Pharisees, they don't need to repent. They keep every part of the law. And yet therein lay the problem. Again, in keeping the law, they were so proud of themselves that they were self-righteous. They had figured that they had earned the right relationship with God that all people should be striving toward. And they had done everything that they need to. Now, God owed them the right relationship. But to them, to those who were known for their obedience, John says, you need to repent, to bear fruit, to live lives that show a different attitude, a humble attitude. And then John warned, and do not presume to say of, to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. See, the common misconception was to say, well, since I have the lineage of Abraham, since I am one of the people of God, his chosen people, his covenant community, then God and I are good. We are his descendants. We share the blood of Abraham, and therefore, since our parents are who they were, I'm safe, I'm comfortable. John doesn't want them to be comfortable. And he wants to remind them it wasn't the idea of sharing the blood of Abraham that was important, but more importantly, it was sharing the faith, the righteousness of Abraham. That is how they could truly be his children, and that's what made the difference. John concluded with the call, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. These men achieved greatest, the greatest positions in society. They were honored and respected. And John says, all of your status, all of your ego, the, your positions in society, all of it means nothing. Instead, they were at the point where only one thing is really going to matter. And that's going to be how are they going to respond to the one who is about to come. John ends this section by pointing to that one. In verses 11 and 12, he says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Over the next couple of Sundays, we're going to be looking at John's attitude toward Jesus. Things that we see in this text right here. Most importantly, we're going to recognize two things. That as John prepared the way for Jesus, he humbled himself and he glorified and elevated Christ. 
And since we're going to focus on that next couple of weeks, I'm not going to expound on this text too much. But we notice immediately, John is preparing for someone he considers to be greater than himself, who he's not even worthy to carry his sandals, a demeaning job, who's going to do great things and who's going to have great power and authority far beyond what even John has. The person... The message and the mission of John the Baptist was to get people ready for Jesus. And that's what we see him doing. And saying that the kingdom of God is at hand and in preparing the people for the coming of Jesus, John is letting them know that everything is about to change. If you want a right relationship with God, the question is not who your ancestors are or what tribe you belong to. The question's not if you're good enough or obedient enough, if you've kept every aspect of the law to a perfect enough degree to earn the favor of the Lord. The question is certainly not how popular you are and how much praise and adulation and admiration you've earned from other people in this world. The only question that will matter now is this. How did you respond to the king when he came? And if there's any chance that you are going to be able to recognize Jesus for the king that he is, for the God incarnate that has come to this earth that he was, then you've got to make some changes in your life. Because if you continue to sin, you will miss him in your sin. Sin is a self-focused thing. It's being led by your desires, by your passions, and by your whims. And when you are being led by your passions, you're not going to see Jesus for who he was. Their pride would not allow them to see Jesus. That if they thought that they were the top of society, the the model of what all human beings should be striving for, and then they're never going to recognize a king who was born in a manger in Bethlehem to poor parents because he doesn't fit their mold. If you think that you've got the proper pedigree That you were born just in the right home and therefore you are comfortable in your relationship with God. And don't have to worry about changing anything in your life. Then you're going to miss the God who revealed what a walk with the Lord looks like when he was walking among them. In order to see Jesus for who he was, you have to get rid of every obstacle that's going to get in your way of recognizing the king, when he has come. And that was John's calling for his audience. And I think that's God's same calling for us today. And seeing Jesus come, the kingdom is here. It's arrived. The Holy Spirit has been poured out, and through the death and resurrection of Jesus, because of that, we can have a right relationship with God. But the question is, do you see it? And are you ready for it? If God were to do a great act in our day to day, where would we be looking for that action to happen? In the halls of Congress? In the deliberations of the Supreme Court? 
and the celebrated celebrities of Hollywood or, or media that, that give us the right opinions. Are we ready for the return of Christ? If he came back today, would you be ready to receive him? And again, the thing that John was trying to get us, get them to see is the same things we need to see. It doesn't matter who you're born to. It doesn't matter how good you think you are. It doesn't matter how much you are honored and, and looked up to and respected by other people, whether it be for your power in society or your wisdom or your intellect. In fact, if you prioritize those things in your life, it actually might become harder not only to see God work in this world, but certainly harder to be used by God to build his kingdom. Why? Because you've got life all figured out. You've got it all together. There's nothing you have to worry about or repent from. You are baptized at this font. You show up to church on a regular basis. God has blessed you with uh, finances and wisdom and many good things. And therefore, you're comfortable. Wait out your days and you'll be welcomed into glory. But that's not the call of John. And that's not the call of God. The call is the kingdom is here. So let's look for it in unexpected places. Let's be humble about our relationship with God. Let's repent of our sins and get rid of all of the things that will stand in the way of a right relationship with him so that his kingdom can be continued to be built in our world and in our lives. If we want to be prepared for God to move in us, in our world, in our church, then we have to repent. Get rid of our sins and surrender to Jesus, not just receiving him as the savior that we all want to fix what we broke, but as the Lord that he is, the king who reigns, and as we surrender to him to point others toward him as well. That is how you prepare for the coming of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, if we truly examine our lives, the reality is that many of us are comfortable, comfortable in our relationship with you, comfortable in our status in society, comfortable with the praise of humans. And in that comfort, Lord, we become prideful. We overlook sin in our own lives while pointing it out in the lives of others, and we live for the applause of humans rather than for your glory and honor. And Lord, hearing the call from John to get prepared for the kingdom that is to come by repenting, by humbling ourselves, by looking for and living in unexpected ways and unexpected places, that that, that is how we would prepare for you. I pray that your kingdom would be built in Escalon, not because we have power or influence, but because we are seeking to serve you. And I pray that not only we would be looking for how you are at work in our world today, but more importantly, that we would always live in such a way that at any moment you might return, that we would feel ready. And that the lives that we lived, we would be proud to hand back to you because they were lives lived for your glory and honor rather than our own. Thank you 
for this call this morning. May it challenge the lives that we live in this coming week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.